uh, the great insight of the Apple II, which was this could be an appliance, a commodity, yeah. could just buy and use. HTML and the browser and the transfer protocol made the internet accessible to everybody. It was the realization of a vision that went all the way back to the early 60s, if not the 50s, that Licklider and others had articulated of an information commons. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. This second installment of our three-part series with Mitch Waldrop continues from where we left off in episode one. We launch back into the 70s and make our way through the 80s, 90s, and up to present time. Mitch also offers some thoughts on the future and shares a bit about his recent work. We cover a bunch of topics, including the rise of personal computing, spreadsheets as a killer app, computer memory and the microprocessor, the emergence of TCPIP as a standard, the web and Sir Tim Berners-Lee, current day monopolies, and the nature of software and its relationship with hardware. You introduced this kind of notion of ferocious computer jock, and you're talking about, I believe, these graduate students who are doing a lot of the work, and uh, they're, quote, yeah. they're, quote, waiting for the grown-ups from the East to come, but the grown-ups never come. Uh, Speak to that. Yes. Well, this is in reference to the ARPANET, which was 1969, and thereabout. Starting about 1967, the ARPA computer office said that we're going to build this network to connect our various sites, the academic sites where we were doing research. Uh, this was entirely a research project, and it was not, at the time, it, it wasn't considered major innovation. This was just something they would do so they could send bits back and forth. The people at headquarters who were designing it put a lot of thought into such things as packet switching. That is, the idea was that you would have this network that was very richly connected across the country. There would be many potential routes to get from one point to another. So it wasn't like a telephone network where you know, there would be like one way to connect any two cities. And they had these big trunk lines and so forth. They did use the telephone network, but they were 
multiple links. And the idea was that if anything happened to interrupt the connection, whether it was a tornado or you know some natural problem or a simple technical breakdown or a nuclear war, you would still be able to get these packets to where they were supposed to go. And the, the point of breaking up the message into these little packets was so that uh, you could still get most of your message, even if one went astray, and you simply had to put everything back together at the end. And also, if a piece went astray or didn't arrive, you could send a request back to resend that. It's sometimes said that the, the internet, the ARPANET, was built to withstand a nuclear war. That is indeed how the idea originated, but the actual purpose of the ARPANET wasn't to link, be an operational military thing. It was to be a, just to link the research centers. So there's a difference between the origin of the idea and what, it was, what the ARPANET was actually for. It is true that they, that this idea was, so, okay, well, we'll experiment with this and maybe further down the line, it might be useful to build a survivable you know, communication systems. But for right now, we're simply trying to link our sites. So they had this basic idea of how it would work. And they had the basic architecture, which was they would, at each site, there would be, it was called an EMP, the something message processor. It was, it was a small computer that would be at each site. It's the equivalent of the networking card in your computer now. But it was the idea, it was, it was like, if you think of the network is like a super highway with these packets running around. The EMP was like the highway interchange that leads you into the local town. You would not want to put all your interstate traffic running right through Main Street, so to speak. So you have an interchange that allows you to go back and forth. So, so these things were the interchange. So they had that architecture. They would be, they would run the packets through rented telephone lines, which is how it was done then. And they would have these imps, but they left the basic implementation of the whole thing. You know, the software, how the imps would talk to whatever computer they had locally, you know, that was all left up to the local sites. And so immediately in the way of academic departments got assigned to the graduate students. And the graduate students realized that, okay, we've got this architecture, so we've got to get it talking to you know, our local imp, but also we have to figure out there's all these pieces missing. Like, if we don't get a packet, what do we do? How do you communicate that back? So all these layers of software, all these protocols for how you communicate just had not been specified. So these graduate students, you know, they, they knew who the initial sites were going to be. So the grad students there, they started talking to each other by phone. They would meet and so forth. And they started, says, well, we can't really write the software we need to write unless we know these other things. So let's just sort of make up what it ought to be and so we can move forward. Steve Crocker, who was a graduate student at UCLA and was sort of a ringleader of all this, said afterwards that we kept, we, we didn't know what we were doing. We just kept assuming that, as he put it, the wise men from the East back in DC, back at uh, ARPA headquarters, 
would eventually tell us what this is all supposed to be, and then we could move forward. But in the meantime, just to make progress, we would sort of make stuff up. And they would talk, and they would talk, and they kept waiting for the wise men from the East. And eventually, as it got close to the first demonstration, they had this horrible realization that they were the wise men, that nobody was going to come to save them and take over and tell them how to do this. So they basically made it up and they made up a protocol for if you got a missing packet, how do you request it? How do you encode the packets so that you, you have to have both the data that's inside it, but also the information about where it comes in the message. It's like if you were sending a bunch of postcards, you know, you'd have to have one of two, uh, one of seven, two of seven, three of seven, or the equivalent. So you could tell if something was missing and a whole bunch of other information, routing information, what's the origin, what's the address. Some of the names or some of the folks who were in this class or category of ferocious computer jocks and still graduate students, I believe you're referencing, for example, Vince Cerf, Alan Kay, Bob Metcalf. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, Well, they were in different places. At UCLA, you had Steve Crocker who was one of the ringleaders. Venton Cerf was a graduate student there. At Bolt, Baranek & Newman, the company in Cambridge that was building the AMP processors, was there was a young fellow named Robert Kahn, who would later be very important in creating you know, the larger internet, as was Venton Cerf. Bob Metcalf was at MIT, and he was involved in implementing, getting MIT onto the network a little bit later on. That was uh, after the first phase. But a lot of these people became well-known figures later on. But remember, at the time, and the honest ones will tell you this, that they looked upon all this work as a distraction from their real work. This was not you know, central to everything. It's just, just a damn thing that ARPA wanted and they had to do. It was required of them and they had to get it running. But it was they, they did not at the time consider this to be anything world-shaking. They were interested in artificial intelligence or graphics or time-sharing or all the other stuff that people were working on. The networking wasn't central to it. We did not touch on dynamic random access memory in the 1970s and the microprocessor and sort of the rise of Intel, which, of course, is a huge enabler. Right. Well, in retrospect, all of that, the advent of the microprocessor and so forth, looks like a, a logical progression from technology that came before. The first computers, electronic computers in the 30s and 40s, well, the 40s, used vacuum tubes. And that was a controversial decision at first because, remember, vacuum tubes are these, they're like light bulbs, they'll burn out. And the concern was since you needed like tens of thousands of these things to make a reasonable-sized computer, the concern was that one would burn out before you could complete a calculation, so it would be useless. And they had to learn how to build these things so that that would not be an issue. You run it at very low voltage, things like that. Uh, Also, they generate a lot of heat. But then in 1948, remember, some physicists at Bell Labs invented the transistor. And as we moved into the 50s and 60s, 
the commercial computers started to use transistors instead. This took a lot of development. They got better and better at creating these things and making the transistors smaller and packing more and more of them onto a single circuit board. I think it was 64, 65 that Gordon Moore pointed out that, you know, the number of transistors for a given cost was falling. Well, the number was increasing according to this exponential growth pattern, doubling every X number of years. And this is at a fixed cost. So he noticed that when they were still doing transistors. Eventually, about 1968, it was in retrospect obvious that you would be able to not only have multiple transistors on a single piece of silicon, but you could actually do a whole processor, a microprocessor, as we'd now call it, on a piece of silicon. That actually came out in 68, and Gordon Moore was involved in that. That uh, led to the foundation of Intel, which I believe was started in 1968. And Intel became one of the leaders, uh, the leader, actually, and driving this process. And one of the things was happening by the 70s One of the things that was motivating the folks we talked about at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center Park to create an individual one-person computer was the realization that with the advent of microprocessors, these would eventually become affordable. Before, when you were building computers out of transistors, or for that matter, vacuum tubes, but transistors, the economies of scale were pushing you towards bigger and bigger central processors. And that was one of the reasons they worked so hard on time sharing is because the economics of scale uh, said, computers are fantastic. One day, every city will have one and we'll all tap into it. Now, today with the cloud, we're more or less doing that, but it's a very different implementation. The microprocess reversed those economics You guys aren't old enough to remember, but I remember when the first handheld electronic calculators with a microprocessor in them, when those came out in the early 70s, I was a uh, teaching assistant in physics at the time. And suddenly these kids showed up and they were calculating out to 19 decimal places. And it was just weird. Those things cost like $300, but okay, they were there. People realized very, very quickly that you could actually do a whole computer this way. The idea of selling them to the public was not something that was immediately obvious. One of the things that happened was famously in retrospect, in the mid-70s, you had the Homebrew Computer Club and people started using microprocessors for hobbyist machines that were build your own mini computer. That famous cover of Popular Electronics in January 1975 showing the Altair, which is often considered the first personal computer. If you read the headline, it actually says, build your own mini computer, your personal mini computer. And it looked like the commercial mini computers that departments were buying and businesses were buying. It didn't have a screen, didn't have a keyboard, so you could attach it all, but it it didn't come, it didn't look like a personal computer we think of now. The great innovation The great insight that changed it, again, in retrospect, was when Jobs and Wozniak came out with the Apple II, which was, I believe, in 77. People have been selling kits, you know, to build your own mini computer. But they had the great idea, and it was probably Steve Jobs who had the idea, that you could sell a computer as an appliance. 
that is something you could take out of the box, plug in, and just use that an ordinary person who did not have to know how to program or so forth could just use it. And that was the great impact of the Apple II. It wasn't simply that it was personal, but that you didn't have to be a computer jock in order to use it, that you could use it for ordinary, everyday life. That was the the huge leap forward. The whole decade that followed is playing out of that insight. That's a great segue. And just to connect back to this idea of the, the microprocessor. So the 1970s is, is in effect the end of magnetic core memory and the microprocessor takes off, enables the path of the computing industry in the 80s and 90s. Right. Uh, it, it did. So remember, it was a feedback loop that the development of microprocessors, once this became a huge market, that influenced the development of the microprocessors. And just as you pointed out, just as importantly, the micro memory, the uh, silicon memory. It turns out that if you look back to the 40s, one of the big bottlenecks in all this was memory. The first computers electronic computers had this incredibly kludged up thing where you would circulate pulses of electricity through like a circular tube of mercury and you were trying to store bits that way. It was incredibly cumbersome and difficult and limited. You couldn't store very much. So the idea of a stored program was, it was hard. And eventually in the 50s, I believe, in the 60s, and one of the, the big companies that pushed this very hard was Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, was the notion of a core memory where you had these little circles of a magnetic material with wires crossing through them. These were called magnetic cores. That's where it comes from. It did not refer to being in the core of the computer. It referred to these magnetic cores. As time went on, these had to be assembled by hand. You had factories in India and so forth, people stringing these things like very fine threads. But you could actually get quite a lot of memory and it was reasonably fast and so forth. So that lasted up well into the 70s. And then eventually you started to have silicon-based memory. Of course, was much uh, faster, much cheaper, and ultimately uh, you could cram many, many more bits in there. But that was a sort of a parallel thing to the microprocessor that was in many ways just as important because without the memory, you can't store the data, you can't store the programs, you can't do much of anything. So then it seems like the core constituents of what would become a personal computer came together in the late 70s. And then when we move into 80s, could you speak more about what were the key developments which happened in the 80s? Well, as I said, one of the key ideas to come out of the 70s was this notion that this thing could be an appliance that anybody could use one, anybody could have one, and anybody could use one. A key development, which I believe was about 1979, was when the notion of a spreadsheet was invented. This was a piece of software that automated the, the conventional spreadsheet that accountants and business people had been using you know, for forever. Uh, they've been doing it on paper. And 
was realized that you could do this on a computer. The, the great insight was that the guy who invented it, he wanted to actually program the thing uh, to actually make it work. And the computer he had available was an Apple II. The first spreadsheet, BusyCalc, was available only on the Apple II, which is one of the reasons that the Apple II sales exploded, because all these business people, they didn't want a computer. What they wanted was this electronic spreadsheet, which they could essentially program themselves. A spreadsheet is a bit like a programming language that you just, you, you assemble the pieces. It's like Lego blocks. You could assemble these pieces in any way you wanted. And it was actually, in many ways, a very profound idea. So VisiCalc drove the sales of the Apple II and this notion that anybody could have one. Remember, an Apple II still cost $3,000 by the time you hooked up a monitor and so forth. And that was serious money in 1980. The thing was that you could, that was still affordable for a business or even for many individuals. You could spend that much money just to have this thing, to kick it around to see what it could do. And of course, once you bought it, you could run the spreadsheet, but you could also run many other things like word processing, so forth. Now, at that time, I was a brand new uh, journalist. I was living in Palo Alto, as it happens. And of course, there were these computer stores springing up. And a friend of mine, uh, also a journalist, had gone to Radio Shack. Remember Radio Shack? Yes. And uh, bought himself a TRS-80, which was another commercial personal computer that you could just buy. And on this, he had something called word processing. Now, as a journalist who made his living by you know, writing things, any journalist, we were among the first groups to just really start glomming onto personal computers. Because if you've ever had to do cut and paste when that meant scissors and tape or trying to avoid rewriting so you wouldn't have to cut and paste, I saw this in retrospect, it was a very primitive word processing program. And it was like this physical lust. I've got to have one. I bought a different kind of computer, but got the word processing running. And I used that for several years. And it was just like this revelation. It just changed the way you wrote everything. And then you had to spend another $3,000 for a printer and certain things wouldn't talk to other things. It, it was really hard. But you know, this trying to get this notion of an appliance, you just plug it in and use it and getting that working all the way through the hardware, the software, the, the peripherals, the printers and so forth. That took years to get all of that right. And one of the important things was to have some sort of standard so that the different peripherals and the different software could work together. Apple had sort of made progress in that direction, but they were very proprietary. You had to buy everything from Apple. The key event for really taking this out to the business world was when IBM threw the dice and came out with its IBM PC. I mean, here was IBM, which was the epitome of business hardware coming out with this. And it was really strange because it was, it was a sort of group within IBM who did this, almost this rebel alliance within IBM. But anyway, they did it. And suddenly it became safe for business people to buy it. So IBM just sort of took over. The famous story is that IBM needed an operating system for this thing. They didn't have time or the expertise to write it. So they famously went to 
this little startup company called Microsoft, which had made its name by creating a basic programming language for originally the Altair. And I think they had adapted it for the Apple II and others. And they said, okay, we need an operating system. So they, they didn't have time either. So they basically bought one that somebody else had created, made some modifications. And that became MS-DOS, which eventually, of course, would lead to Windows and all the rest. So that made Microsoft because now they were the company that made the operating system. So it all blossomed from there. What was also interesting is in the early days, and some of us remember those early days, you had all these different kinds of computers, all these different operating systems, all these peripherals, all this software, none of which talked to each other. And it was a nightmare. And by the way, in those days, what little tech support there was consisted of hacker types who were contemptuous of their customers for not knowing how instantly how to do this. I had some very interesting conversations with tech support. So this chaos of nothing talking to everybody else drove this push towards standardization. Because it was IBM, most of the business world standardized around the IBM PC architecture, the Intel chip that they used, and the MS-DOS operating system. So increasingly, software was written in order to run with this operating system. Hardware and peripherals were designed to work with this. So this architecture more or less took over, and sort of the Intel, and this was all you know, based around the Intel chip, and which went through many, many cycles of evolution and is actually still there. So the, the Intel chip, they kept coming out with new versions. And of course, you needed new machines and so forth. This uh, drove this rapid acceleration in the hardware and the operating system and the software. In parallel, of course, you had this Apple was still going strong. And Apple had picked up more or less whole cloth the the bitmap graphics approach that had been pioneered at Park, and they more or less took the whole thing, complete with mouse and bitmap graphics and everything. They took it over, and that became the Macintosh in 1984. And so you you had for the longest time that was the only way you could get this really fancy interface, and it was considered the sort of bizarre, almost cult like thing. But it held its own and it became sort of this competition between Apple on the one hand and the Wintel or the Microsoft, Intel, IBM thing. Also, IBM didn't make its architecture proprietary. So you had other companies could start building compatible machines, which is another key thing. Apple, everything was proprietary. So you couldn't build an Apple clone. You could build a PC clone. In fact, after a while, IBM quit making the things because uh, others took off. So you had competitors becoming much more powerful like Compaq and others. You know, DEC had its own series. Uh, it, was, it was quite something at the time. And eventually the PCs became like commodities. So that was the 80s. And interestingly, uh, of course, Individuals were buying these, but companies were buying hordes of them and automating their processes. And for the longest time, this is going to segue into the 90s. For the longest time, you know, an economist reporting this out, you didn't see any productivity increase because of this. Initially, 
and this is almost inevitable, but initially people were buying these things. The word processor replaced the typewriter or supplemented the typewriter, but it was basically just a fancy typewriter. The spreadsheet replaced the paper spreadsheet, but it was essentially the paper spreadsheet. And so you were basically automating or replacing what you were already doing. And in many ways, there were improvements. I mean, you make makes it much easier to revise the document, for example. But the real productivity increases weren't obvious until the 90s. And by that time, you started to have the networking, the you know, local area networks started to come in. Those that actually started to come in in the late 80s. And businesses started to reorganize themselves around this new technology. That is, they weren't just automating what they were already doing, but they were taking advantage of the technology to reorganize entirely. What I know, of course, is publishing. And I was working at Science Magazine at the time. Again, initially, we were just using the PCs, which we got about 1984, as fancy typewriters. Uh, just made it easier to revise. So what you'd do is you'd spend more time revising, and so your net productivity didn't go up. But once we started linking things with the local area networks, you know, the whole production process could change. And you had to have software that could support that and so forth. So the whole... And we started to reorganize around that. I left science about 1991, so I didn't see that full process. But the parallel thing was starting to happen elsewhere. And so you did see a productivity boost for white-collar industry, white-collar work, starting in the 90s, but only because they reorganized, rethought what they were doing. This is actually quite classic in the history of technology, by the way. We need to really touch on the protocol level in the 1980s. And I think if you feel inclined perhaps to share some thoughts on the National Science Foundation, which seems to really have taken over the baton. So there's this big seemingly battle between protocols, right? TCP IP versus OSI, and then eventually TCP IP won out. Maybe talk about the protocol on sort of how TCP IP emerged as the standard. Right. So when you go back to well, that actually uh, dates back into the 1970s. In the early 70s, 72, 73, 74, Robert Kahn, who I mentioned earlier, he had been at Boat Brannock and Newman and had helped Benton Surf and others get this software, initial round of software implemented. And that worked well for the ARPANET, which was based on what we would now call landlines, that is the telephone system, which had fixed lines between fixed points, so forth, and had certain properties. Khan, starting uh, in the early 70s, went to ARPA, and he became head of the computer office. The military had started begun to see the potential of networking and communications, and also just sending data back and forth between various computers. But they had multiple needs. In terms of communication, they would have people out on vehicles, you know, a Jeep or a truck, which were moving around. And of course, you can send bits by radio, but the nature of radio communication is different from talking on uh, landlines. For one thing, you might have a connection 
what today we would call it Wi-Fi, but they were talking about sending bits through radio. You might have a connection with a moving vehicle, but the vehicle could go through a tunnel or go behind a hill. Any number of things could affect the quality of transmission. So you needed to be able to take that into account and then restore the bits that are lost, you know, the packets that are lost. You would have to use different data rates because just of the nature of the connection, the, the radio would support a certain data rate, which might be different from the heart of the landline. So they, they wanted to do radio packet switching. They also wanted to do for ships at sea or for planes around the world, they wanted to do satellite communications. And again, you've got your satellite link could go below the horizon. You'd have to pick up another one. You could still think in terms of sending packets of data and what's called packet switching, but just the nature of the networks was very, very different. And so the same protocol for routing the data, for making up for lost packets and all that would have to be different. So what Khan saw, and deserves a great deal of credit for this, what he saw was we have to find a way for all these networks to talk to one another, because you might want to, you would want to send data from a computer that's hooked up to a landline network, but that has to go to a truck that's out here on a radio network, might actually have to be routed if you're going, if the truck's on a different continent, might have to be routed to a satellite on the way. So you need to be able to send those packets across multiple networks. Well, how do you do this? Khan spoke to his old friend, Surf, who had worked with at UCLA. Surf, by that time, had become a young professor at Stanford. And so he basically gave Surf the commission, figure out a way for all these things to talk to one another. So Surf came up with a way, he said the simplest way he could think of was it's a little bit like if you imagine your network, if, if your essential bits, your, uh, the core of the message, the bits you want to send, let's put that in an envelope, okay, and put that inside another envelope. The second envelope, the outer envelope, has essentially all the protocols for the network you're currently traveling in. The inner envelope has the message and all the, you know, the, the basic addressing information but is it's just sitting there the outer envelope has the all the stuff you need for the current network uh, that you're routing in and then you would imagine that if you want to connect two networks you'd have a gateway and what the gateway would do this is a computer that serves as a gateway between networks what the gateway would do was when it got a packet it would open that outer envelope read the addressing information and everything else it needed on the inner envelope, then put that in a new envelope that's designed for the, the next network along the line and send it along. And then it would repeat it. Every time you go to a gateway to the next network, it would open that envelope, read, put it in a new envelope. <laughs> that's essentially what it was. This, this came to be known by the poetic acronym TCPIP, Transmission Control Protocol, Internet Protocol. The beauty of this simple system that uh, Surf devised at Khan's suggestion was that you weren't limited limited in the kinds or number of networks. You just 
you send it to any number of networks, you can come up with different kinds of networks that you hadn't thought about before. Ethernet being an example. Ethernet was being developed almost simultaneously up at Park. That's a whole different set of protocols. It's packet switching, but a different set of protocols designed for local uh, area networking. So you could just keep doing different envelopes, the, the same process for each gateway you went through. So this became TCPIP. I was devised about 1974. People from Park, including Bob Metcalf, who we mentioned before, Bob Metcalf was de- devising Ethernet up at Park. He participated in the discussion groups that uh, Surf was holding down at Stanford, which is about two miles away, and uh, as did many others. And so they devised this protocol and went through several iterations and eventually became the official ARPANET protocol on, I believe, January 1st, 1983. Surf had moved to ARPANET by that point. You could say that that date was when the ARPANET really became the internet. This was a protocol that worked and could go through any number of networks and just linked anything. Uh, it was quite general. What is your understanding on why TCP IP as a protocol suite won out against other competing protocols? It was not obvious at all in the 1980s that TCP IP would emerge as the standard it is today. Right. Well, there were, of course, uh, once you do it once, there are other, lots of people who think, figure they can do it better. And maybe in some ways it was. In particular, in this particular case, by the early 80s, there was a competitor that had been devised by various committees and was being championed, especially in Europe, as a much better, more elegant way of doing this. It was more complex and people were working on it. And it was an open question in the early 80s as to which of these would win out. And in retrospect, the key decision was made at the National Science Foundation. The National Science Foundation in the, about 1982 or three, decided to open up a series of supercomputer centers that would have supercomputers that non-military researchers could use to do problems simulating galaxy formation, simulating plasma physics, simulating all sorts of things, and would be, support basic research. There, was, there were going to be five of them around the country. And rather than ask researchers to travel there simply to run their programs, they decided they were going to network them all together so that people could send in their programs and operate the machine remotely just by sending bits. This would be much more efficient, much quicker, much better for everybody. But that meant they had to network not only the supercomputer centers, but they had to have links to essentially every campus in the country, simply because they're the National Science Foundation and researchers could come from anywhere. So they basically decided that they had to build this network, much like ARPANET. And there were other networks with different protocols that were being used in the commercial world. And so they decided they're going to build this network, again, by renting phone lines and the like. The question was, which protocol would they use? And it was about 1983, they decided that they were going to go with TCP IP. And the reason was that however elegant OSI might seem on paper, nobody had ever actually implemented it. It was a much more complex protocol with many layers. TCPIP was up and working and had been, people had implemented it. It actually functioned. So rather than let the perfect be the enemy of the good, 
NSF decided, and it was a quite a controversial decision, that their new network, NSFNet, would use TCP IP. So they do this. They put links to everybody in the country. But of course, that meant at every campus in the country, people instantly realized that there was no restriction on this. They could use this to send messages to anybody in the country. And so people started, this became the core of these campus networks. Uh, campuses were installing local area networks like crazy at this time. And so they linked it in to this NSF net. And that became like a general purpose network when they actually opened it up, I believe it was in 1985, they were using telephone lines at a few tens of thousands of bits per second. That was high speed in those days. It crashed immediately because there were too many people, too many users. They had to keep upgrading and upgrading and upgrading. But that ultimately became the core. It hooked into the ARPANET, but that ultimately, the NSFNet became the parent of the general purpose network we call the internet today. And the mechanism by which the, the ARPANET uh, or the internet, as it had become in January 1st, 1983, how that became the general purpose network that everybody is now using. And TCP IP came with it. Let's move into the 90s and the emergence of the World Wide Web. Yes, the, the key event there was, of course, that in late 89, 1990, Tim Berners-Lee at CERN, the Particle Physics Center in Europe and Geneva, invented a way to, he used an idea that pre-existed him, hypertext, that actually went back to the Engelbart group. He used a graphical display that you could link between online documents and display them and have graphics and so forth. It was a graphical way. His original intent was simply to allow researchers to uh, see graphics and data and so forth, share it with each other. Up until that point, the internet had been this very abstract thing. You were sharing data, but then you had to open you know, the file with the word processing uh, document or a spreadsheet or whatever. The World Wide Web and the protocols that Berners-Lee devised for it gave you something to look at. He not only used hyperlinks, but he devised this whole language, which he actually adapted from earlier efforts at the hypertext uh, protocol this whole language for marking up documents so that they could be displayed properly. Uh, this is HTTP, HTTP. And that's where you get, so this is body text, this is headline. HTML. Uh, uh, excuse me, HTML, that's right, yes. Hypertext markup language. And then, of course, they had this hypertext transfer protocol, HTTP, yes. which allowed you to transfer this to various things. So he devised HTML that gave you something to look at. And I remember the first time I actually got a browser, this must have been about 92 or three, you started seeing these multicolored things appearing. In those days, it took forever for a page to load because still going at uh, telephone line speeds, but it was just enthralling. And of course, the other thing that Berners-Lee invented, which is sometimes forgotten, is he not only invented 
HTML for marking up and HTTP for transmitting it. But he invented this piece of software called a browser that allowed you to just click on the link and go to the next document and so forth. That was his idea. And he implemented it on what was then a very high-end graphics machine. It was the one that Steve Jobs developed when he was in exile from Apple. Next? Uh, The Next machine, yes. He had a Next computer. And if you see screenshots from his original Next, it actually looks very familiar. But of course, the that was just one piece of software that ran on one piece of hardware. There was this cottage industry of people writing browsers for their own machine and so forth. So there are a lot of browsers, but there was one guy at NCSA, graduate student named Andreessen, Mark Andreessen, at one of the NSF supercomputer centers of the one at the University of Illinois. National Center for Supercomputing Applications, NCSA. He developed a browser, but one of the things that made his special was that Netscape, it was called, is he spent a lot of time listening to messages, feedback from users for how to make it better. And he would very quickly implement good ideas. So it made it better and better. And so Netscape emerged as a, a kind of emergent standard. Do you mean Mosaic? Uh, I'm sorry, Mosaic. Yeah, it was called Mosaic. Mosaic emerged as a standard for browsing and it was available for a lot of machines and people adapted it. That actually lasted for a while. I mean, they tried to commercialize it, but then Microsoft came out with its own uh, browser, Internet Explorer, and more or less took over that space. But again, there was this, just as it happened in the 80s with hardware and operating systems and software, there was this push for a standard. It's sort of natural that standards are something that everybody can build to, which means that you aren't writing just for a niche market or creating something just for a niche market, but have the broadest possible market. Standards are actually liberating in an interesting way. And that's a whole discussion about the importance of standards. Sort of Internet Explorer took over. And of course, people were also working hard to make HTML interoperable with all the browsers. So this all took a lot of iterations and Internet Explorer became pretty much the standard until it was displaced by other things. Google came out with Chrome in the 2000s and pushed it out. But mostly they were interoperable. So it, it was for the user, it was more or less transparent. So in that sense, it seems like in the 90s, there was a democratization and available accessibility of computing as well as how you connected with each other and the browsers make right. it made it much more usable for a common person to start adopting these things. So in, right. in- uh, again, it was very much like you know, the great insight of the Apple II, which was this could be an appliance, a commodity mm-hmm. you could just buy and use. The notion of HTML and the browser and the HTTP transfer protocol made the internet accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. It was the realization of a vision that went all the way back to the early 60s, if not the 50s, that Licklider had articulated, Licklider and others had articulated, of an information commons, that you could have a commons where it was all open to everybody. This is an idea that did not originally have a large constituency. Of course, 
it makes what makes possible e-commerce and a lot of things that are now extremely valuable. But remember back in the 80s when e-commerce didn't really exist, you can't miss what you don't have. So and it took a lot of vision to see the possibility and a lot of good luck that we eventually got to an information commons. This was not inevitable. And of course, in the years since then, in the 2000s and the 2010s and now the 2020s, grappling with the consequences of that, which are not all good. We've seen, among other things, the information commons and the digitization of just about everything that can be digitized has upended the business models of many from the music industry, the news industry, the book industry, what have you. And they're still reeling from that, some more than others. The news industry is only just starting to find its feet. We've lost quite a few newspapers and local news is still in trouble. What we also saw starting in the early 2000s, of course, was the realization that the bits flow both ways. I mean, a lot of the implementation of the internet and what was done there was, again, automating what we already knew. So Amazon automated book selling, but it was essentially a gigantic online catalog. And it expanded to, of course, everything else. But it was the old idea of an online catalog. People were, various sites were putting their uh, brochures online, essentially automating, telling their story, talking their products, so forth. And that was all automating what we've been doing before. The profound thing that changed that came in the 2000s was the realization that the bits flow both ways, that individuals can create their own content. This is a whole discussion about crowdsourcing and so forth. So you had the rise of, of course, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all of which came into being roughly in the mid-2000s, which allowed people to sort of create their own magazines, create their own content, share, and sort of the ultimate in crowdsource goodness, uh, one of the few bashedly good things to come out of this uh, was Wikipedia, which is probably the closest thing to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy we've created yet, you know, the source of all human knowledge. And it's vastly better than anybody would have believed 20 years ago. You wouldn't have thought it was possible, but they have done it through aggressive moderation policies, by the way. But we've also seen, and there's no need to discuss it in great detail, but we've also seen the downside of all this, of upending not only the business models, but of this being a, a route for radicalization for some really bad elements, conspiracy theorists to find each other and create these echo chambers. And we're still grappling with that. I predict that some form of regulation, either self-regulation or government regulation or some mix of it, is going to come for the social media platforms, going to have to, for the same reason that every other site has learned they've got to moderate the comments. They've got to do something aggressive about the forces that they've unleashed. Again, that's a whole other story and one that I'm not especially expert on. You hinted a few things over the last 20 years which have changed. How do you see things evolving going forward? 
Well, I just mentioned that I think social media platforms, which do a lot of good. I mean, I keep track of what my friends are doing on Facebook and so forth. That's a great thing. I think crowdsourcing in various forms, whether it's on posting photos to Google Maps or restaurant reviews or Wikipedia, citizen science, that's a, that's a whole other thing. I mean, that's all going to go forward and increase. We're going to see a lot more regulation and moderation. There's talk of breaking up the big online monopolies. I don't know how that's going to play out, but I will point out, and this is, again, another fascinating discussion, the concepts we have of monopolies and the risk of monopolies were all, and, and the, the case law that goes around that are about the risk of bigness, but that was all formulated before we had businesses that benefited from strong network effects, where the value of the thing depended upon how many people were part of the network. And before you had business models like the various freemium models. I mean, Google is giving you one hell of a lot of stuff for free and the price, which they arguably should be more open about, but the price is sharing your behavioral data. Where the right line to draw on that is still an open discussion. Who gets to access that data and use that data and how they use it is an open discussion. The old model of monopoly and bad corporate behavior doesn't really fit this notion of a freemium, giving you lots of free stuff and uh, more stuff if you pay, and then using user data. That's become possible because of the internet and advanced data analytics. And we're still struggling with how, what's acceptable, how do we regulate that, how do we manage that. This is not, in a way, it's not unexpected. Every new technology has created issues that had to be worked out and business models that had to be worked out and law has to adjust and public opinion has to adjust. There are lots of these issues that have to be adjudicated. Another thing that's happening is the internet of things, but the fact is you're getting sensors and data from everywhere in huge amounts. And whether it's the state of the bridges where they've got sensors on them. You can do environmental monitoring at a very, very fine grain level within a city out in the countryside. You can do health monitoring with wearables. So you can do traffic monitoring. Cars are going to become not only more intelligent, but we're going to be communicating with each other and with the ground. So there's clearly going to be huge issues about how do you actually effectively use all that data, which is a big technical question, but how much are we comfortable sharing? How do you protect privacy? What does privacy even mean in the modern age when people gleefully give up information about their shopping habits or browsing habits because they're getting all this great stuff for free? For the most part, it doesn't bother people. What does privacy mean? How do you institute protections? How do you keep bad behavior from happening? None of this is original to me, but those are some of the issues I see. A 
like we've pointed out previously, the Dream Machine is really this landmark contribution to the history of computing and the evolution of what is today called the internet. It's masterfully crafted. And one of the reasons I say that is its unique contribution in characterizing these abstract notions, conceptual notions around what is software, what is technology, what is computing. So let's talk about that for a moment. They're really rich, the way you've characterized them. And I think you've explained them in a way that helps people really kind of wrap their head around what is happening because that's not always easy when it comes to this stuff. So maybe talk about how you think about conceptually and how you define software, the internet, hardware, technology on on a high level. One of the great insights that came out of the 1940s, in fact, we can almost date it, it was first articulated by the mathematician John von Neumann in 1944. He was sitting up in Los Alamos waiting for the test of the first atomic bomb at uh, Alamogordo, and he was drafting what became known as the first draft on the report uh, on the EDVAC, which was a predecessor to the ENIAC. He was thinking hard about computer architecture. This is where he introduces the abstract architecture for a computer with a central processing unit and memory and so forth. But it's also where he articulates very clearly for this the first time the notion of a stored program where in which the program, the algorithm, the software is just another form of data that can be stored inside the computer. This is a profound shift. It sort of completed the shift from the notion of analog computing, building a physical model of the problem to abstracting the algorithm away from the hardware entirely. What mattered was the steps, the processing steps you took And what made it so profound is, yes, it took you away from the actual hardware, which means that the same algorithm, the same software, potentially could run on another piece of hardware that is physically completely different, but there's something the same about the software. And if you do it right, it'll give you the same answer. The comparison, which was my own, but the closest comparison I can come to is it stood in the same relation to the computer hardware as a piece of music has to the instrument on which it's played. The algorithm, like the music, is in a sense meaningless without the instrument. It can't exist without the instrument, but it's also independent of the instrument or the the computing hardware. In a very interesting way, you could run a given piece of software in principle on a Babbage analytical engine, in principle, on a Turing machine, on this laptop Chromebook that I'm looking at right now, or in the cloud somewhere. And the algorithm, the software stays the same. I got really poetic when I was writing this. It's probably as close as technology has ever gotten to the the notion of an of a soul independent of your physical body. I don't want to push that too far, but that's I think at some level that's true. It is the soul of the machine. The machine can't do anything without it. The machine is inert without it. On the other hand, 
the software is at both independent of the machine and can't exist without the machine. What's also interesting about computers and hardware is that the line between them is quite fuzzy, more fuzzy than we realize. It is perfectly possible to encode certain algorithms in the hardware. In fact, this is very often done. You encode certain arithmetic processes in the hardware to make them run faster because the hardware can operate really fast. And so whether something exists as abstract digital code stored in memory or is simply a command for the arithmetic processing unit to carry out a certain calculation, there's a bit of give and take there. This becomes really true when you start thinking about how the brain works, which is very, very, very different from a digital computer, though there are parallels. A lot of the work in what are now called neural networks, which is the predominant form of artificial intelligence these days, or which has gotten less attention, but which is also really fascinating, neuromorphic computing, in which you try to make processing units that are like the neurons. One of the significances of the neural network type of computing is that the hardware and the software are much more intimately integrated than they are in standard computers. And that's one of the reasons that they can, the neural networks can do so much better than standard computers in terms of recognizing patterns, in terms of interpreting speech, recognizing speech, and so forth. The neuromorphic computers, which you basically use silicon to model the neurons at an individual level. Again, you're embedding a lot of the processing in you know, the structure of the hardware. It's a very interesting topic on which I'm certainly not a full-fledged expert as to how the hardware and the software intertwine. Honing in on software, how do you define it? What is software? And, and more importantly, what is the nature of software to your mind? Software and the classic definition in terms of the digital electronic computers that we're used to using, including this laptop, what have you, software encodes the instructions on how to do anything. It encodes how the computer responds when I click a key. Maybe it just displays a character on the screen, or maybe it deletes a character. Maybe it does something else. So that's an example. I'm trying to display something. It, it encodes how the things displayed. It's an abstract version of a very, very old idea. The ancient Greek philosophers were talking about the notion of an algorithm. The word algorithm itself is derived from an Arabic word that talks about the steps you go through to solve a problem. There are profound theoretical insights to be had about the nature of algorithms, what they can and cannot compute. Most famously, Alan Turing in the 1930s showed that there are limits to what an algorithm can compute. There are certain things that it cannot compute, that no algorithm can compute. That notion was refined by Noam Chomsky, a linguist, but a very brilliant linguist, who showed that there were different categories of algorithms and what they can and can't compute. There's a great deal to be said about the, the limits and properties of algorithms, but that is basically what software is. It is a set of instructions. 
in modern computing, they, these instructions are encoded digitally. They are stored in the memory of the computer along with the data that the algorithm is operating upon. This means that in principle, you could use the algorithm to modify itself, which is some part of what is going on in artificial intelligence. In practice, you don't do that very much in, uh, with the digital computer, the standard computing, because you quickly crash yourself. In principle, it is just another form of data and can be examined and operated upon and changed. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's a fuzzy boundary between hardware and software. You can choose to encode certain low-level algorithms, primitive algorithms in your hardware in order to speed it up. That's what's done with the arithmetic processing and standard computer. More recently, we've seen what are called graphical processing units, which have zillions of tiny processors that do certain types of graphical operations or operations that are useful for graphics display. That's one of the reasons our displays can show movies and so forth very, very uh, nicely is because you've got these graphical processing units that can crunch through this data really fast. And that's because they've got certain algorithms built into them. So we've gone through this whole journey of computing and software and hardware, and that has been a privilege. Could you speak about what you are doing recently? Well, I'm a writer, so I do all sorts of things, uh, <laughs> not always related to computing, though I have. In the last year or two, I've written extensively about artificial intelligence, the limits to the current form, currently popular form of artificial intelligence, which uses neural networks that are highly trained on massive data sets. They can do very powerful things in terms of image recognition, speech recognition, and so forth but there are limits to, to other things they can do. I've written about the impact of AI and robotics on jobs, and you know, that's a whole other discussion, but basically we aren't going to make humans obsolete anytime soon, so rest easy. I've written about deep fakes, which is, again, the use of artificial intelligence to manipulate graphics and can be startlingly real. But I've also done other things. I did a story for a magazine called, an online magazine called Knowable about recycling and the challenges and opportunities of recycling. And I got to go tour one of the plants that takes all the stuff you throw in your blue bin and sorts through it and sorts it out into various piles that can then be sent off to plants that render them into uh, new products, new materials and new products. That was fun. My biggest project last year was what turned into almost 50,000 words. is like a small book on the history of how astronomers and physicists came to understand the origins of the cosmos, cosmic origins. And that was a lot of fun because I sort of knew the story, but digging into it, I realized just how hard it had been for people to come to appreciate you know, notions of cosmic origins. Like 100 years ago, well, 110 years ago, you, uh, most astronomers didn't even think about it. They, they figure it's just an abstract philosophical question, good for dorm room debates. 
but you're not something serious observers would waste their time on because how would you ever find out? It wasn't until a few years later in the 20s and 30s that it was established that, yeah, the universe is expanding. And if it's expanding, so a lot of people accepted that it was expanding, but couldn't quite make the next leap that it was, if, you, if it was expanding now, it had to come from something at a finite time in the past. Oh, this is actually quite controversial. But going through a lot of that, you go, you go through expansion of the universe, discovery of the microwave background radiation, uh, discovery of what's called cosmic inflation, and some of the possible exceedingly weird implications of that, like the multiverse, which is a real concept. It's not just Spider-Man movies. You know, some of the cosmic mysteries you're facing today, this wasn't easy. And you didn't just discover something and everybody says, Eureka, and now we understand there was a lot of opposition and mental resistance to the idea that the universe even had a beginning. A lot, including from Einstein, a lot of resistance to the notion that, you know, there could be something like a Big Bang. In fact, Big Bang is, is famously, it was originally a kind of derogatory term applied to the idea that there was a, a cosmic origin. So one of the things I took out of this is just how hard it is to come to these conclusions how the ideas had to overcome resistance. And if they're widely accepted now, it's because the evidence just became overwhelming. And contrary to certain deconstructionist theories, this isn't something that a bunch of physicists just sat around and invented one day. It was something, it was a set of conclusions forced upon them by evidence and forced and forced and forced. And you know, that had to overcome a lot of resistance. How can somebody access your work, which you're talking about, which you've done recently? And then second one, if you can briefly tell us how, like these are very different areas which you've tackled. What's your, what's your method or framework we, you use to kind of tackle this? I know we can talk probably a long time on it, but any insights you can give us will be very useful. Sure. The articles I mentioned are mostly to be found in two uh, places, a knowable that's K-N-O-W-A-B-L-E, Noble Magazine, which is an online science magazine. It's put out by the Annual Reviews family of journals, scientific journals. And just type in Knowable Magazine and you'll find it. The other place I've been doing a lot of writing for is PNAS, Front Matter. Again, that's a more or less popular science magazine. It's PNAS stands for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and that's a scientific journal, but this is a part of it that publishes popular articles. So you can find it there. The Cosmic Origins thing ha actually hasn't been published. It's finished, but this is actually commissioned by the John Templeton Foundation, which likes to ask big questions like Origin of the Cosmos, and it will be published on their site and possibly elsewhere in sometime in the next few months. Uh, they're holding back only because they actually have a package of four of these survey articles like this, and they're going to do them all together. That's where you would find it. How do I approach this? Well, well, that's in some ways the fun part. The hard part is knowing what's an interesting topic to explore. Sometimes editors just give it to me, and I say, hey, that sounds interesting. Uh, well, these days, I do a lot of Googling, trying to find out where the issues are and so forth. But the main way you understand something, and this is actually one of the great lessons of journalism, the main way you 
the best way to understand something is to talk to the people who are doing it, who are involved in it. That's when I mean, journalists do interviews all the time. And that's what you're trying to do. It's You can get the basic facts in Wikipedia or so forth, but understanding the significance of what you see uh, when you Google something, understanding the significance of the issues, where things are since this news article from three years ago, you just read how things, how things changed then. This is people who are deeply involved. They will each have their own perspective on it. So you need to talk to many people. And then you ask each of them, who else should I be talking to? And what questions should I be asking? And you, you just widen it from there. And when you, if you have infinite amounts of time, which you never do, you know that you have sort of really mastered an area when people start telling you the same thing over and over. And you've talked to all the key people when you ask them, who else should I be talking to? And they give you a list that includes you've already talked to or you have already scheduled. Who has that kind of time? But it's not unlike what researchers do in science or technology. You're relying a lot more on what people tell you uh, because it's interpretive. I can only describe it, what it feels like is you're wrapping your head around something uh, and you begin to see the relations and you begin to see the, the contours of what the story is uh, and it emerges out of what you find. Uh, you try not to impose your, you try not to come at it assuming what the story is. Uh, you have to have some idea or you wouldn't even start, but you have to be open to changing your mind and you know reorienting your focus as you go along or else you just aren't listening thank you so much so yeah this idea around process and your process is, is fascinating you have a, a unique ability to convey complex ideas that we certainly admire so We'll go into the last section here, and uh, it's rapid-fire style, meaning not more than 20 seconds per answer, if possible. So the first one to come at you is, what motivates you? I really like what I just described, wrapping my head around something, understanding it, seeing how it all fits together. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? Well... Speaking as a curbside recycling NPR listening liberal who is very supportive of the whole liberal pantheon, I'm deeply suspicious of the entire woke culture, cancel culture thing that's going on right now. I find too much of it is virtue signaling or performative actions rather than actually trying to solve problems or to listen to anybody else. There's a self-righteousness to it that is offensive, and I'm hardly alone in this opinion. But I stress that I'm coming at this as someone deeply sympathetic to the goals, but profoundly suspicious of the way in which too many people are coming at it. What or who has had the most impact on your thinking, career, or life? It's hard to pinpoint, but I'll, I can tell you a moment. When I first started taking physics in college, and I found the act of doing the homework problems incredibly compelling. It was compelling because, not just because it was fun to solve problems, and it is, 
but because I was getting an insight into how the universe worked. I, it, it was a hard to describe feeling of almost communion with you know, the dynamics of the universe. Maybe that was self-deception. I don't know, but it was truly thrilling, this business of understanding, of getting it, of connecting. So that's been a huge driver all of my life. What are you currently reading? Well, for fun, I tend to read trashy science fiction or detective stories, sometimes science fiction detective stories. Some of it is actually very, very good. I highly recommend the Expanse series, uh, which, of course, is also now uh, a TV show. It, for its insight into political and human dynamics and the effect of technology and environment on both of those. I tend to read a lot of the commentary in New York Times and Washington Post, and I try to read it on you know, multiple sides of the political divide, uh, trying to understand what's been going on in the country, why things are so polarized, why there's so much gridlock. But that's a lot of what I read when I'm not reading for fun. Who are your favorite writers or podcasters? Well, it, it's sort of a standard list. I really like uh, Ezra Klein, Thomas Friedman, David Brooks, Paul Krugman. I read Jennifer Rubin a lot in the Post. You know, it, it's a fairly standard list of really insightful, uh, David Frum, really insightful essayists who don't just spout the usual line, but you know, think really hard about what's going on. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.